Good evening, and welcome once again to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm your host, Jeff Hayden. Tonight on Your Legal Rights, with participation and assistance of the Labor and Employment Law Section of the California Lawyers Association, we're talking about artificial intelligence in the workplace. Profound societal changes have a way of leaving imprints in our institutions, in the way our government works, and yes, in the workplace. And while artificial intelligence, or AI, is in its infancy, AI clearly bears the potential for creating major societal change. Maybe not all for better. And so tonight we take a look at the workplace. Is this science fiction? Is it something that's in our future? Or is it here today? What protections are in place to protect workers? And, as always, we're eager to hear what's on your mind and answer your questions. Our phone number right here is 415-841-4134. Again, 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, call us toll-free at 866 798 8255. That's 866-798-8255. As always, you can call regarding any question on tonight's topic. We're talking about artificial intelligence in the workplace. You don't have to jump in at the exact moment we may be in our conversation. And do bear in mind that our guest can't give you precise legal advice as they don't have all the facts relating to a given case. But we're happy to pass along legal principles to assist in your decision-making. We'll give you what's going on out there and what people are experiencing for your benefit. And their legal guidance mightn't be the positions of their prospective uh, employers or clients, but they're here to help and to inform. And again, our phone number, 415-841-4134. Or if you're outside the Bay Area, call us at 866 798-8255. Joining us tonight, we have attorneys who are far more familiar with this technology than we are, than we wish they had to be. As a senior staff attorney for Worker worker Power, Minsu Lanjaru provides legal support and strategic thought partnership to ongoing, I'm sorry, to organizing and policy campaigns in the Power Stitch Action Network, a seasoned workers' rights attorney with experience in investigations, litigation, and policy. Ms. Lingerie has held leadership positions supporting workers' rights in law firms, labor organizations, and governmental organizations, most recently serving as a deputy attorney general with the state of California's Worker Rights and Fair Labor Section. Also joining us tonight, Samantha Gordon is the Chief Program Officer of Tech Equity Collaborative, a nonprofit whose mission is to raise public consciousness about economic equality issues that result from the tech industry's products and practices and advocate for change that ensures tech evolution benefits everyone. Prior to joining Tech tech Equity, she served for over 12 years with the 2 million member Service Employees International Union, SEIU, most recently as Division Executive Director for SCIU Local 1000, which represents 96,000 state workers across California. 
And without further ado, Samantha Minsu, welcome to Your Legal Rights. Hello. Welcome. Nice to see all of you. Hear all of you. Let me start with a, a basic question. Um, let me ask, what is artificial intelligence as we're talking about it? We all have some idea of it. And I think that to a point, many of us have actually used it and don't know it. Can you give us an idea about what it is and how we might recognize it? Yeah, I can start and then Mensu, please jump in um, and weigh in for me. Um, so I think this is a really actually important question and one that is really active and debated right now. Um, you know, I think with the introduction of ChatGPT, the mainstream, the public, everyone's consciousness exploded around this topic. All of a sudden, AI was everywhere, and it means everything to everyone. Um, but what we try to do is sort of back up the truck and say, okay, sometimes when people are saying AI, they're meaning it to include a lot of different types of technology. So you may be talking about what we sometimes call AI systems. Um, you may be talking about machine learning, which is foundational to a lot of the technology. You might be talking about automated decision-making systems. So things that are, you know, taking an algorithm, analyzing data and saying, here's the decision, the outcome you're approved for, you know, this loan or you're not. Um, and so at its core, I think one of the simple ways to think about this is that almost all of these technologies operate from an algorithm, which is essentially all of us are familiar with algorithms because we all use social media. And I think that became a household name, right? But an algorithm is really a set of rules in computer programming code that solve a problem or perform a task based on data that's inputted. When people talk about AI, sometimes um, they will be talking about what we call generative AI, which are these large, large language models, um, sometimes called foundation models, where they're scraping in tons of data into a data training set. And then they're putting together what a lot of us know as kind of a chat bot, right? Where we can go in and be like, hey, I want to make a dinner that costs $30 and includes these three ingredients. And then it generates a recommendation for you. So um, AI is wide. It includes a lot of different types of technology. Um, but for shorthand, we like to say AI includes kind of everything that um, has to do with machine learning and algorithms. And yes, that includes generative AI. Um, and I'm happy to push into that further, but I don't know, Minsu, if you would add to that. Well, before you do, let me ask you, can we take yeah. a step back? I want to make it a little more accessible. Yeah. So you've talked a lot about the operation. You may have got a little bit more into the sausage making than people are willing to really grab, grasp. And what I was more interested in hearing from our perspective, what does it actually do? How do they? How do people recognize it? Is it those robocalls we get? Is it um, calling up for customer service and getting routed through a machine that actually learns as you talk to it and sends you to weird places? And I told Minsu when we were off air, some of the things that I do with those machines, 
but that's a different topic. Um, so tell <laughs> us a little bit about a practical idea. What is it? What does it mean to us, artificial intelligence? Yeah, yeah so it shows up in a lot of places. Um, and Minsu, please jump in if you have specifics to add. I think a couple of examples. Um, you know, uh, mortgage underwriting has been done through automated decision-making systems and sometimes the more sort of less modern pieces of that for a long time. So you're putting in a set of information about yourself. The machine is looking for a set of criteria to match it to. It's sometimes giving a score to a loan officer. Sometimes it's just making a recommendation about whether or not this loan should be approved. The other place where we've worked on this a lot in our organization is on algorithmic tenant screening. So those, you know, often are coming um, from smaller companies, startup companies, sometimes from big, you know, credit reporting things. So for anyone that's applied for an apartment, you've gone to apply for an apartment, you've given your information to a landlord. Um, many times now, the landlord will ask you to fill out a form through an online system um, through one of these companies, and it's going to ask you a series of questions. And then it's going to produce a report for your landlord. And this is different from company to company, but a lot of times it will give you a score. You know, Samantha Gordon is a, you know, 600 out of a thousand. So she's kind of a, a yellow level tenant. We think she might have some issues around paying her rent at some point. But often, you know, tenants might not see that report, right? They might not get it from their landlord. And it's not obvious what data made that decision. But these sorts of systems are making recommendations. You know, there's been a lot of talk about, um, these systems showing up in healthcare, right? And so they're generating a recommendation for a diagnosis and a treatment plan for nurses and doctors based on the inputs that are being given. And then there's a lot of questions about do nurses and doctors have to follow that diagnosis from a machine? So it's really honestly, it's everywhere. <laughs> it's everything you're touching. Um, the question is what, you know, if you want to stay out of the weeds, like what type of technology is fueling that? That's more complicated, but we see it in so many critical sectors. And Minsu, to follow up on that a little bit, what does it actually mean in the workplace? I mean, is this something that's already in use today? Absolutely. Um, the amount of AI in the workplace is growing. Um, there's a 2023 survey which found that 98% of human resources leaders said that they intended to use algorithms to use AI to select which workers would be fired, especially like when they're dealing with tens or thousands of, you know, layoffs, um, and so what we're doing is we're seeing uh, AI everywhere at work. We're seeing it in screening resumes. We're seeing it in who gets, who gets hired, who gets fired. We're seeing electronic systems being built to be able to vacuum up data, which will then be plunged back into an AI system to make critical decisions around work. So you see workers' location being electronically tracked, sometimes at the workplace, sometimes off-site. Um, we also see uh, video and audio surveillance, workers being recorded, cameras. If you're an office worker, maybe your keystrokes are being monitored. You may not even know it. We see biometric monitoring. 
your face and your fingerprints being captured by your employers. And we see all this data being pulled into building profiles of workers that are being used to make decisions. Um, everything from whether or not you'll keep on working there to even how much you're being paid. In some ways, isn't this the next step up from the standardized tests where everything is standardized and according to um, algorithms and nothing based on any human factors? There's nothing. um, It's all digital. There's nothing analog in the decision-making process anymore. There can be sort of a slippery slope or a dangerous myth that can be built around that because sort of part of the part of what AI promises but doesn't quite but does not deliver is the elimination of the human element, the elimination of human error. That is the illusion that AI provides. But the reality of what AI provides is something very different. Very often we see that the data that's being put into these systems is data that reflects human error, and therefore the output of these systems reflects human error as well. And when we look at you know these systems and whether or not they're having the intended effect, very often researchers find that these AI systems are in fact ineffective and that they're generating more negative than positive outcomes for workers. Um, Literature reviews, um, you know, of different algorithmic, you know, management studies find that like more than like 90% of them find that the overall impact on workers and the workforce is negative. And so I think the jury is still, despite the widespread adoption of these systems, it seems there are very serious questions about their effectiveness. And it seems like there's a growing body of evidence that, you know, people are being harmed by you know, what are essentially like, uh, you know, uh, systems that, you know, are very experimental on many levels. And of course, in some areas where it's measuring your keystrokes, measuring how many calls or whatever you handle, that's objective data. It might be that that avoids people from putting their values in what you're doing and it's more objective in the end what the results are whereas other things where people are actually creating the data that their misperceptions if i understand you right or their biases are going to influence what goes in and you end up garbage in garbage out yes but even then it raises the question of you know what is objective data what is the metric that we use So for an office worker, for example, maybe that's something we can all relate to, is keystrokes. When I'm an office worker, what is my job? My job is to reduce knowledge, is to analyze problems. My effectiveness to do that is not going to be measured by how many letters I'm typing on a computer or how much time it is between when I'm shuffling my mouse. And yet that is the data that's being picked up. Do we want a workforce that is tapping away without putting thought into what they're doing or shuffling a mouse around? Or do we want people that solve problems? The latter can be assessed by humans in a more holistic fashion. The former, am I mechanically tapping my keyboard? Am I nervously shuffling my mouse? Those are the kinds of metrics that are very rudimentary and misleading metrics that are being picked up in many of these systems. 
I also think it has the power to incentivize behavior that might not actually be aligned with business goals and the outcomes that employers want to see. So, you know, there was a lot to Minsu's point about sort of the surveillance that's happening with keystrokes, monitoring, mouse jiggle, mouse movement. You know, there were like mouse jigglers being sold <laughs> all over the place, right? During the pandemic, because everyone was working remotely. There was... Excuse me, mouse jigglers? Yeah, basically it could like move your mouse for you if you were being monitored in that way. So you weren't docked on your time or put into a punitive situation with your employer. So you put a little device on your mouse that artificially moves it around. It makes it look like you're being productive. Yes. Yeah. So um, I think that's a good example of how whatever the metrics are that you set, employees are going to try and meet them and they might not be aligned with the goals, right, of, to Minsu's point, getting the most knowledge and the most analytic, you know, power and, you know, prowess of the workforce. And so really thinking about not just the technology itself, but what's the impact on the people and does that impact further the goals of the employer, of the employees, of morale, of wellness. And I think these sort of, you know, keystroke monitoring, mouse movements, you know, there was reports from the New York Times and coworker.org did a lot of reporting on this of, you know, sort of um, surveillance systems coming in and taking photos and in random intervals of people of whether or not they were at their desk, right? So it not only raises a lot of legal questions around protected class status and what people might need to be doing in terms of taking breaks and taking care of themselves, it also is, you know, a pretty invasive process, Um to bring that sort of oversight into your home, into your remote working area. So I think it's also about the context in which technology is introduced, even more so than the tech itself. One of the things that Minsu and I were talking about before we took the air were things that we all experience, whether it's call centers or even a call sequencer, where you call and try to get support and you get routed through machines that make decisions based on what you say and try to find a way to get between you and the need to speak to somebody human. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happening now and with call centers, things, you know, things of, that, of that ilk? Yeah. So let's look at sort of the other side of that interaction, right, which is the call center worker who's sitting in the place that's receiving your phone call. So call center workers are some of the workers that are the most subject to, you know, AI and algorithmic management. Um, They are subject to voice recordings, computer screenshots, tracking of their keyboard strokes, monitoring of their text interactions, software that purports, although there's a question about how accurate it is, you know, to measure how, you know, sympathetic or empathetic they are to the callers. But one thing that we're seeing with call center workers is that because these systems have adopted so much AI technology to handle, let's say, more run-of-the-mill interactions with customers, what we see is the way in which AI can speed up and degrade working conditions for workers. Because what ends up happening is that the calls that end up getting routed to the call center workers are the calls that are the most difficult to solve, where the customer is the most angry and often is angry as a result of having had to go through previously perhaps eight or nine different AI systems that didn't solve their problem. But on the worker's end, what does that mean? That means that, you know, for eight or 10 hours or however long my shift is, 
I'm being continuously yelled at, which is something that would never happen in a in our normal lives. It's not a kind of stress that we as humans are adapted to be able to handle. And so, you know, this is very alarming. What we're finding is that larger and larger numbers of call center workers are actually getting sick, you know, from from these working conditions. Um, there's studies that show that more than half of call center agents have been prescribed medication to treat stress or anxiety. Um, and that's like more than twice of um, the 19% of the general population that's affected by um, anxiety disorders. That's, um, that's an estimate that's coming out of, you know, Harvard Medical School. So we're really seeing the human cost of these technological systems. And that's only one industry. There are many more, thousands of industries across the country. We've just chosen one as an example. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Jeff Hayden. Tonight, we're discussing labor and employment law as it relates to artificial intelligence in the workplace. My guests tonight include the Chief Programs Officer of the Tech Equity Collaborative, Samantha Gordon, and Minsu Lanjaru, Senior Staff Attorney from the worker, from worker Power in the Power Switch Action Network. If you have questions for my guests, our phone number is 415-841-4134. Again, that's 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, our toll-free number is 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. As always, you can call regarding any question on tonight's topic. You want to talk about artificial intelligence in the workplace, you jump right in. You don't have to jump into wherever we are in our, dis- in our discussion. So we did talk about one example, one industry. Do you have a sense, is that the use of artificial intelligence and w- working workers that hard? Is that going on in a lot of different industries right now? Yes, absolutely. We see it with hotel workers. We see it with truck drivers. We see it with retail workers, warehouse workers, app-based workers, you name it. Uh, These systems are being used to speed up work, de-skill work, um, and in many instances to make work more dangerous, uh, both physically and both psychologically. And these are emerging technologies and our regulations have not kept up. One of the programs we've discussed on this show fairly often is looking at the way our votes are counted and looking at proprietary voting systems versus open source voting systems. And one of the great problems that is foreseen in that arena is that when there's a glitch when something is not coming out as expected, there's no easy way to get in and find the data because these companies that own the systems are protecting their trade secrets and their work product. So it becomes very hard to go in and look at the data. What is the experience of most employees right now who are being governed or judged 
with the use of artificial intelligence, can they at least go in and see the way the decisions are being made and what the data was? This is a core problem with artificial intelligence is, you know, all of our normal rights and protections in the workplace, they get more complicated under these digital systems, right? Under algorithmic systems, because of the point you just made, these data sets are often claimed to be proprietary trade secrets, and there's not a lot of visibility into both the training data or the data that goes into a decision, but also why that decision was made, what what were the factors that it was assessing on. And as we all know, workers require that kind of information to be able to pursue their existing legal rights. And so this is true not just in the workplace, this is true in lots of contexts, you know, take housing where there's fair housing laws, right? If people don't know what the inputs were to a decision of why they were denied housing, was it based on discrimination? Was it based on inaccurate data? Was it based on any number of things? So it's very, very difficult for workers and people who are impacted to pursue their rights because there's no requirements for transparency around how these decisions are being effectuated. So that's one of the biggest changes that needs to happen immediately. Um, we believe, and I think many of our state agencies and federal uh, agencies would let you know that, you know, there's no difference between discrimination done by a human and discrimination done by an algorithm. The only difference is that people often don't know that it's discrimination when it's through an algorithm. And so all of our existing rights cover these sorts of scenarios, but people have to have window into them because of our system that people can't pursue recourse without being able to demonstrate that harm had happened. At some level, we've heard for years about diminished roles for middle management and how these companies are laying off not at the very top, but substantially from the middle. Is that what's really happening? Are we really working and being working for and being supervised for machines to the betterment of the people that own the stock and that are actually at the very top? I I can try on that one. I don't know, Vince, if you want to, I mean, to my eye, so at Tech Equity, we focus a lot on the tech industry's over-reliance on third-party contractors to do work that is core to um, the functioning of the tech companies and tech products. Um, and so my answer to that probably has less to do with AI or machines and more to do with the role they're playing in this ongoing degradation of work that we've seen for the last, you could make arguments, but definitely for the last 40 or 50 years. Um you know, one of the things we've noticed is with, you know, companies that had traditionally offered really, you know, in some cases, very lucrative, but in others, just very stable, very good employment. Over time, they've been siphoning more and more of those roles to third party contractors to do important things like content moderation, data analytics, um, software design, all sorts of different roles. And, you know, there was a report in, I believe, 20. 18 um, by the New York Times that said that Google actually employed more temps vendors and contractors than their direct employees. It was like 120,000 um, TVCs compared to, I'll get this number wrong, but like 109,000 direct employees. And one of the things we've seen in our research as we've been 
continuing to interview contract workers is not only had that shift from direct employment to contract work happened, now what we're seeing is often people are getting calls back to come back to that contracting role, but being asked to sign up through services like Upwork or Guru that do piecework, um, where you're taking one part of what had been a full-time job, you're they're atomizing it into unique pieces, right? And saying, you can sign up for this one 10 minute task and we'll pay you X, Y, Z or this one hour of work. And the role of AI and digital technologies is they're facilitating that, right? They're allowing sort of work to be broken up into tasks. They're allowing through platforms for people to be able to easily come on and sign up and maybe, you know, bid for the job and whatever the lowest bid is, is what they're going to take to complete the job. So it's a long answer, but I would just say it's technology AI. It's just a tool that can either accelerate or maybe bring daylight, depending on how you design it, to existing power imbalances. And so it's accelerating the degradation of work. It sounds like in some ways management has been moved over to self-driving cars, if so to speak. Uh, we'll see Cruise and, and Waymo deciding middle management decisions and deciding what to do with people in the workplace. One of the things is we see there was a whole effort to understand automated management and workplace surveillance. And Minsu has a really wide knowledge set on how these are happening in sectors. So I would definitely say you should talk about this from a variety of sectors. But one of the things we've seen in this contracting world to your question of like, who's the boss now, right? Like who's reviewing your work um, is we have been interviewing contract workers who are hired by a staffing agency, let's say to do work for a big tech company, and their work assignments are given to them through a third-party software system, um, just some random app they have to sign up for to do their job. They get pushed an assignment, they do the assignment, they submit it back through the app, and um, they have all of their work managed through this machine and they don't talk to a manager. They don't talk to an employee. So yes, I think that to your question, it is happening. You're listening to your legal rights. We'll be back right after this. Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information. So we're talking about the use of artificial intelligence in the workplace, it seems from what you're telling us that it's much more pervasive than people are probably aware. What are some levers out? Well, let me ask you first, what are some challenges and opportunities that employers face given AI? Minta, do you want me to do that one? Do you want to do it? Oh, sorry. Um, no, I can, I can, I, I can address it. Um, in terms of the, in terms of the legal liability, you know, there, there are a number of areas where employers can, you know, run afoul of the law. Um, we've got privacy law. Uh, there's the possibility of unfair labor practice charges. Uh, you, there were reports in the media of 
for example, employers using artificial intelligence to develop heat maps of you know, workplaces that were more likely to unionize. Uh, we are looking at discrimination. Uh, there's possibility of algorithmic error contributing like to unpaid wages um, and overtime and also workplace injury claims, right, as employers use algorithmic management to speed up the pace of work. Um, so those are all areas that employers need to be concerned about. Um, at, the same, at, at the same time, too, there's also some emerging laws um, which do give you know, workers some new rights in this area that employers you know, should be aware of as well. Um, so we've got emerging data rights, under the California Consumer Protection uh, Consumer Privacy Act um, and some some others as well um, that we can that we can discuss. You mentioned uh, the California's consumer privacy laws. What does that actually mean for workers? What does it mean in this context? So the um, California Consumer Privacy Act or CCPA. It, I, we're, I know this is a workplace rights show, so some people may be wondering, you know, what is a consumer? Like, why are you talking about a consumer law? The definition of consumer under the CCPA is broad. So it covers, you know, in basic terms, you know, people in California, which includes, you know, consumers and workers, regardless of how you're classified, if, if you're a worker or you're an independent contractor, and so, you know, people in general in California now have rights to request their data. Um, and that can include, you know, data in your workplace. Um, data rights are, are really important. Uh, you know, in the simplest terms, I think, you know, that knowledge is power and having access to your data is therefore a way to be able to, you know, exercise power and agency at work. Um, and, you know, when I think about, data rights, I just think about three kind of key questions. So first I think about like, what is the data that this company has on me? You know, how is the company using this data? Why are they collecting this data on me? What are they doing with it? And then the last one is, you know, uh, what is the purpose, you know, for which they're using this data and is it legal? And we can get more into the specifics of the CCPA next, but I think that it's very important that we all remember that this is our data as workers. This is data that we created through our own labor. I heard another data activist describe data as almost like blood. Like when you take my data from me, you're taking my blood. And you might run an analysis or a test on that blood, but that is still my blood. That is still my data. And so... Um, you know, the, these rights, these data rights, these are rights to things that we created and that we, these are rights to things that as workers are ours. Um, and we can talk a little bit more about what the CCPA covers, um, but it's it's a very important right that's been established here in California. It doesn't exist in other states around the country yet. Um, and it's important that we continue to exercise leadership in this space. Let me turn it to Sally from San Francisco. Sally, you're on the air. Welcome to your legal rights. Okay. Um, I wanted to know something about, before you even get the job, do HR departments use AI as pre-screeners for resumes? Because um, my son's been um, 
applying for jobs that he thinks he's, you know, suited for, and he's not getting any interview appointments. I don't know whether this is they look for certain things or whether they're DEI only or, you know, I don't know what they're looking for in these resumes, but he's qualified and he doesn't get any calls. I mean, they don't even, in fact, they don't even call him to say thanks for, you know, turning in your resume, but no, no thanks. Hey, before I turn this call over to my guests, let me ask you a question, Sally. Do you know if his resume was something that he drew up himself or that he took the data to somebody professional to draw up for him? No, he did it himself, but he's very qualified. <laughs> he's got a master's degree, and he's been, to, you know, he's smart and knows, he's taken templates and recognized what he can use, the setup and what so forth. So how about it, uh, Samantha Minsu? First, to Sally's question, are they using artificial intelligence to really go through and try to shake out a more digital version of what Sally's son is. But also, I'd like you to answer my question, my follow-up, which is, is this something that somebody, a professional in the field, would more likely take into account and adjust the content, or is it really a more of a look and feel thing as far as what the professionals are doing? This might even have something to do with, um, you know, cover letters, too. I mean, do they look at cover letters? or is there, any, is there any real person out there really doing this work, or is it all left to the uh, AI screeners? Well, I can say a few uh, things. One is we definitely know they are using AI in hiring systems. That is the place where I would say in terms of work, it's one of the fastest-growing um parts of this field. We're seeing these companies crop up and many of them get bigger and bigger and sell to more and more employers. So step one is, um, yes, it's happening. Also, I'm really sorry that that's been your son's experience. I know how frustrating and demoralizing that can be, and I'm sorry he's going through that. I think one example I'd love to share, because I think it's illustrative of what happens sometimes in these hiring systems, is there was a famous example of um, Amazon decided to develop a hiring algorithm to figure out how to get the, you know, quote unquote, best employees in through their hiring process. And the way they did this was they used the data of resumes and sort of work product of existing employees to design essentially an algorithm that would screen out candidates who didn't fit sort of the profiles of their existing employees. Um, so it penalized, um, it ended up penalizing resumes that had the word women's in it, colleges where there were, you know, predominantly women um, in the universe or in that university um, and that downgraded people that didn't match sort of the skills and um, words that were in existing employees. But what happened was the existing employee base was predominantly male. And so the algorithm learned that the preference is for men. And so it rejected resumes that were coming in for women. So Amazon ended up scrapping that program. But Minsu made this point earlier is there's this rush to adopt a lot of these systems. And one of the biggest risks for employers is they're often buying kind of off the shelf products without really understanding how they work what data they're taking, what types of, you know, screens they're going to be putting in place. And they're using them, to your point, Sally, to 
wholesale review resumes and just reject ones that don't fit whatever the system's telling them. And I think that's a big cause for concern is do we have enough transparency? Are they following, you know, our existing protections for candidates who are applying? So I'll I'll pause there, but that's, I think, a really important example of what can happen in these systems. Well, it could be also with uh, age. You know, if somebody wants yes. to start a new career, but has already, like in this case, um, they want to start a new career, and they think that this is the place that they would do best with, and... Uh, they look at the age and they say, oh, well, we want a 20-year-old, you know, or just out of college, or we'll, we'll pay him 16 bucks an hour or something. Right. Well, and that's, I mean, to that Amazon example, it'd probably be similar there. You know, in that example, it was that their, at that time, their global workforce was 60% male, um, and 74% of the managerial comp, um, positions were held by men, right? And then you could imagine too, this, you know, this study didn't talk about age, but we've talked to attorneys who are really worried about age discrimination in these AI hiring tools and how they can create sort of reinforcing learning that tells them to hire younger workers. So I think your point is pretty spot on and something that we really need daylight on. You know, we all need to be careful about not putting age in a resume and you may not put dates to age directly, but you're going to put dates or things of that nature. Mm-hmm. They're going to figure out your age. Exactly. <laughs> and if you've had experience, then you're going to put that in your resume. Exactly. Exactly. Well, thanks for the answer. It's uh, somewhat discouraging. <laughs> Sally, thank you for joining us in your legal rights. And I have to say, when we're talking about this arena, it is somewhat discouraging. I had lunch with a an elected official, pretty highly rated, uh, highly ranked locally. I won't mention his name, but he described things emerging over the last several years as if we let twenty somethings rewrite our entire future. Yeah, it's emerging very, very quickly, and um, the dynamics are changing really, really quickly. And so I think, you know, a lot of times when you hear people talk about these issues, um, we really talk about them from how do we do this in a way that centers humans in the design? You know, one way to think about this is a lot of times we we don't think about it. We're desensitized to, you know, the point Minsu was making of like your data is your blood. We're really desensitized to that. But one way to think about this is, would you be comfortable with a human doing what a machine is doing right now? Would you be comfortable with a human sort of out, out of nowhere looking at all these different data sets about you and then deciding whether or not you could get an apartment without ever having a conversation with you or whether or not you are going to be an effective employee without ever having a conversation with you. And so I think that sometimes it's helpful to just pull up and think, what are we allowing these machines to do? And should we pause and ask questions and ask different things of our elected officials and how they intervene and create guardrails around these systems? And one of the areas I think we all expect that this is taking place is in medical decisions. And your doctor may know you personally and may be making a more analog decision about how your health is, what you need, what the next step should be. But some of the more corporate health providers are overseeing that and deciding in a more digital way, who is this person? What are they going to contribute? 
how long are we going to continue to foot the bill? Let me turn it over to Mike from El Sobrante. Welcome to your legal rights. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, I just wanted to contribute. Um, hold on for a minute. Let me turn off my radio because I get echo. Okay, I just wanted to just um, uh, just uh, plug a book that uh, I just came across that seems very uh, pertinent to the conversation. It's uh, from an author named Hilke Shellman, H-I-L-K-E-S-C-H-L-L-M-A-N-N, and it's called The Algorithm, How AI Decides Who Gets Hired, Monitored, Promoted, and Fired, and Why We Need to Fight Back Now. And can you repeat that title once again? Oh, it's called uh, it's called the algorithm, and uh, it's by an author named Hilke Schulman, and uh, it's how AI decides who gets hired, monitored, promoted, and fired, and why we need to fight back now. It's a great book. It sounds fascinating, but I'm looking at Samantha, and I think from her expression, you're very familiar with it. Yeah, it's funny. I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, we were on a coalition call and one of um, the, I, I will lift up Matt Shear in case he listens to this, um, one of uh, Center for Democracy and Technology's leading experts on AI and work and a, a particular legal expert on AI and hiring. He was reading that book and he said, you all have to read this. It's the best thing I've read in years on this topic. So thank you for raising it. And it's a good reminder to me to order it and read it. <laughs> and um, yeah, hear all the great things that are in that book. Thanks so much for bringing it up. Thank you for joining us, and do come back to your legal rights. Let's talk a little bit about some of the key emerging policies in this area. Are people looking ahead a little bit and trying to rein this in? Absolutely. So in you know California, we, we do have the CCPA, which is an important right that workers can use to you know get their data in the workplace and begin to peek under the hood of the black box of these algorithms. Um, that's a right that, you know, anyone can exercise and we should all, you know, exercise our rights under this new law. The other thing too, is that we don't need to give in to a kind of, you know, fatalism about our ability to, you know, regulate these new and emerging technologies in many other countries in the world, there are comprehensive sets of regulations that provide many more protections than we currently enjoy here in the United States. So, for example, in the European Union, there's the General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR, which contains guardrails which require human involvement and human intervention in, in key decisions, um, you know, like firing and others. Um, Brazil recently adopted a law modeled on the GDPR. California's Consumer Privacy uh, Consumer Privacy Act adopts parts of the GDPR. Um, there are other, you know, important protections that we have yet to enact. But, uh, like, by all means, we can enact protections. It's a matter of political will. It's a matter of our being able to, you know, unite and demand, you know, these protections just the way we have throughout history when cars were introduced, when airlines were introduced, 
um, we can do the same things here and keep ourselves and our communities safer. Yeah, I would just add to that. There's um, current rulemaking, if you're here in California, or I guess it's right before they're about to start rulemaking on some of this technology, specifically around this concept of risk assessments and what those mean. Um, so there's a lot of opportunities if you're someone that wants to dig in to really learn more about this. Um, they're going to be, I think, putting in rulemaking activities soon around some of these technologies and how they can really make sure that we're enforcing people's privacy rights. There's also um, work happening at our civil rights department here in California around similar topics of how can we make sure that these technologies aren't furthering discrimination in our employment or housing settings. And there's a lot of legislative proposals that are getting introduced. There's been a lot of effort um, actually by the Teamsters to require that autonomous vehicles semi, I, I don't want to get the details wrong, but that large trucks on the road, you know, semis, um, would have to require a worker to be in the cab. They can't just come onto the roads as autonomous vehicles for safety issues. There's been a big legislative effort around that by the Teamsters. There have been a variety of sort of proposals to deal with some of the most urgent issues of this Um legislatively here in California. There's also really brilliant model legislation that's been introduced and hasn't been passed, but I think gives the framework of what we would need to ensure that workers have their rights and the information and clear guardrails around technology that's really unacceptable to be, you know, deployed in the workplace. And so we're really eager, you know, over the coming years to make sure that the policies that get introduced both deal with the immediate harms and deal with some of the context specific problems, but also really to make sure that policy gets crafted in a way that it can withstand the test of time and make sure that humans have a real role in how this technology comes into their lives. Seems to me that also there should be a role for overseeing this technology and the use, um, much like the voter analogy I used earlier we should be able to see how decisions are made or how they were made, be able to have somebody you go to to say, wait, this is this data that was, that created this decision perhaps leaves us wanting. Absolutely. This is a big concept that's put forward in, you know, the White House's AI Bill of Rights and a variety of different model policies is it's often called a human alternative. Um, sometimes it gets, you know, um, added with this idea of being able to opt out of a system. Um, and Dr. Annetta Bernhardt, who's at the UC Berkeley Labor Center, she's been really coining this term of we need a worker in the loop. So not only do we need to make sure that consumers and workers have the ability for a human alternative, we need to insist on structures where workers can be a part of really working with the employer to define what the problems are and whether or not technology would really be beneficial. And then helping, you know, we have examples of different places where workers have done this, where they help to actually write the specs for the technology that gets requested and brought into the workplace. And then giving workers and the public, frankly, a meaningful oversight role to your point, Jeff, of, you know, how do we have 
um, regulatory structures that provide oversight, but also how do we have people who are impacted and using impacted by and using these systems having clear roles in evaluating those systems and saying like, you know, here's what we were told would happen and here's what's actually happening on the ground and how do we want to reconcile those pieces? So I think there are um, really important concepts to be landed um, and put into place, you know, not just in California, hopefully nationally. We talked about the big picture and the picture from a, a macroeconomic view. Are there specific industries that have some interesting lessons to tell us? One miner in the, you know, one uh, canary in the mine are gig economy workers or app-based workers. Um, those workers sort of are in many ways like subject to some of the most extreme forms of, you know, algorithmic management, you know, algorithmic management and algorithmic, you know, technology. And so, you know, some of the kinds of issues that we're seeing there are, you know, deactivations where workers don't know, you know, why they were deactivated, why they were fired, and they can't get the information from the app. Or, you know, if they try and, you know, find it, maybe the response that they're getting back is that it's a, you know, it's some kind of trade secret. The other area that is emerging in the app-based space is what has been referred to as this concept of algorithmic wage discrimination, which is the idea that as machine learning improves and as the technology becomes more powerful the possibility is being introduced that algorithms could actually calculate using data from different service, from different sources what is the lowest amount of compensation that a particular driver might accept and then pay the worker that lower amount. And if you go down that road, you do end up in a scenario where the, the most financially vulnerable drivers might actually be getting paid the least amount for their work. And you have, you know, completely severed this idea that, well, if we're both doing similar kinds of work, we should both be paid the same amounts for that work, right? Like equal pay for equal work. But you're also looking at a possibility where technology could be used to magnify inequality, right? In a sense, the, the the workers who have the lowest incomes are getting paid to do the lowest amounts for their labor. Um, so those are some of the kinds of issues that are emerging to the extent that you know, certain advocates are calling for a ban on these practices um, and the need to um, you know, ensure first of all, that these don't happen and that they don't, you know, uh, like spread into other areas of the labor market. I heard on the radio that Wendy's is now experimenting with surge pricing or fast food outlets, right? Um, so we're seeing how some of these algorithmic pay pricing structures that were, you know, developed in the consumer side of the gig economy are now expanding elsewhere. And we've seen this gig economy model spreading now, not just from rideshare drivers, but, um, you know, to hospitality workers um, and in other areas of the economy as well. So these are some of the emerging trends or possibilities that, um, you know, we, we really need to, um, 
you know, make sure do not spread. And Wendy's, just to clarify, was very quick to disavow that. They said they never used the word surge pricing. They merely said that they've, they're putting in electronic uh, boards and all of their company-owned na- restaurants nationwide. They're rolling them out now with the idea that they can adjust to conditions, but they never intended to surge, uh, have surge, uh, surge pricing or to up the pricing at any given time just to make it to where it's workable in the off times and the like. We're all your friends. We have just about a minute left, and I did want to ask you, is there anything people are doing right right now? Mitsu, do you want to do that? I I think that <clears throat> I think there are a lot of people really trying to figure out the right thing here. I don't think there's just, you know, an evil mastermind like, you know, twiddling their fingers, dreaming up. I think some of that exists, but twiddling their fingers and dreaming up all of these different scenarios. I think the biggest thing is we want to support folks that are doing this. And we know often it is really difficult to operate from an ethical frame inside a company when your your interests are also really centered on expanding market share. So we want to make sure there are clear guardrails in place to protect the public so that that doesn't have to be a company by company decision on whether or not to do the right thing or even knowing enough to do the right thing. I think there are some basic guardrails and protections that are really required in order to sort of foster that innovation. I think that I think the main, you know, one one of the main opportunities here is that we always just need to remember that you know technology is created by people. This technology should be you know for the people. Um, it was certainly created by the people. Um, so you know, one one uh, kind of thinker in this area who folks might be interested in following up with um, is uh, Joe. Joy Bolamwini, um, who recently came out with a memoir called Unmasking AI. She also works with the Algorithmic Justice League. Um, and, you know, one of the things she said is that the rising frontier for civil rights will require algorithmic justice. AI should be for the people and by the people, not just the privileged few. Um, this technology is, is for all of us. And, you know, with all of us, we can make it work. You've been listening to your legal rights on KALW 91.7 FM in San Francisco, where tonight we've been discussing the laws and policies regarding artificial intelligence in the workplace. Our guests tonight have been the Chief Programs Officer of Tech Equity Collaborative, Samantha Gordon, and Minsu Longeruth, Senior Staff Attorney for Worker Power in the Power Switch Action Network. As many of you know, we've had an occasional broadcast there where we feature one of the lawyers who has impacted our daily lives, some very well known to the public, some less so. Next week will be such a broadcast. Please join your legal rights again next week, Wednesday at 6 o'clock, where we will feature an evening with the Honorable Quentin L. Kopp. A big thanks to tonight's guests and to the Labor and Employment Section of the California Lawyers Association, and a big thanks to all of you for listening. At the controls, Joanne Marr. I'm Jeff Hayden. Good night, be safe, and zealously guard your legal rights.
Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information.